Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Happy Friday to all of you wherever you may reside. Well, what do you know? We are now in a new season. Season 22. It makes it sound like this is a television show series. Actually, it's not, but here we are in book number 22 of this um, endless um, collection of stories, forgotten stories, stories that maybe we know some things about but don't but didn't get the real uh, truth or the real story behind um, the matter itself. So yes, here we are in season 22, but it's been well worth the ride and it will continue to be well worth the ride for as long as I choose for it to be that way. But I have no signs of slowing down. And um, I'm just very thankful that I have you all, my fellow listeners, to keep this um, amazing journey afloat because you guys are the ones that help make it happen. So many of you all are wondering, where exactly are we going in Season 22? Well, I will tell you this. We will be going into the 20th century. That's quite a uh, leap from the previous podcast series where we were in the 18th century now to the 20th. Uh, century. What exactly is it that we will be discussing? Well, I will tell you this much, we will be in the early part of the 20th century, but we will be uh, talking about a, um, we will be talking about rather, I should say, uh, something that took place, not just on a particular body of water, but on a series of uh, waters, rather, I should say, the Great Lakes. Now, I know most of you who have been with me, uh, we have uh, talked about um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. We also have uh, talked about the uh, wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. The Fitzgerald happening from 1975, the Carl D. Bradley from 1958. So, what we're going to be discussing about is a particular um, incident that happened during the second decade of the 20th century. And I can tell you this much right now, that it involved more than just one ship. Usually when we think of shipwrecks, sometimes we tend to think of them as just being involving uh, one wreck. But we do forget that more often than not, shipwrecks involve more than one ship, especially if it is something that could pertain to uh, not only just weather, but other unforeseeable circumstances that lead to the demise of a handful of ships. So let's um, start off with our uh, prologue, or rather I should say introduction. And as we get towards the end, I will uh, let you all know what the exact title of this uh, new book series uh, we will be discussing. So uh, here we begin, folks. Uh, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to listen in on this uh, prologue for what's going to be in store. Commercial shipping along Great Lakes waters has been an established practice with its earliest roots dating back to 1679. Do you hear that folks dating back to 1679? So that means here we are in 2022. If commercial shipping along Great Lakes waters has been an established practice with its earliest roots dating back to 1679, that means that, uh, that uh, all of this first began 343 years ago. Uh, 
of course, in 1679, um, there were no um, shipping docks like we know today along Great Lakes waters. But it is fair to say, based upon what I learned, that the uh, first um, the first known um, voyage along Great Lakes waters occurred in 1679. And whom was the uh, first European uh, to conduct this exploration? A French explorer named named uh, René Robert Cavalier Sieur de La Salle. I realize that my French may not be the strongest. I might not be fluent in French, but that is um, the best uh, pronunciation of this um, explorer's name I can give you all. Robert La Salle, let's just make it simpler. He built a yawl. I don't know if many of you all know what a yawl is, but I'll tell you right here. A yawl is a sailing vessel with two masts, or I should say upright posts or tall poles intended to support a vessel's sail. And we must keep in mind back in 1679, there were no such things as motor boats. In other words, we didn't have any keys to start our engines. So what do you think Robert LaSalle, like other European explorers, would have relied upon? The wind. Winds. Winds are the, um, are the key to getting a ship uh, moving. So for Robert LaSalle, his mission became set along Lake Huron's waters, pertaining to establishing Indian relations through the fur pelt trade industry. When you think of fur pelts, what animal could come to your all's mind? Beavers. And fur pelts, folks, what do you think those are going to be um, intended to um, make um, for fashion-wise? How about hats? Fancy hats for those of the uh, top sector of society or the uh, wealthy. The boat that uh, Robert LaSalle constructed became known as Le Griffon. And in 1679, this vessel ventured west from Lake Erie up into Detroit. Not just, well, I wouldn't say the city of Detroit, but along the Detroit and St. Clair rivers, where eventually LaSalle and his crew met their destination along the confines of Lake Huron. LaSalle and his men explored the Straits of Mackinac. In case any of you all aren't familiar about the Straits of Mackinac, they uh, pertain to um, the area that we now know as the Mackinac Bridge, Mackinac Island. The Mackinac Bridge con uh, basically connects the mainland of Michigan into um, the state's upper peninsula or what's referred to as the UP. So LaSalle and his crew explored the Straits of Mackinac, including Lake Michigan. The fur pelt trade was good, but come summer's end, Le Griffon departed the shores of Wisconsin's Door Peninsula. And in case any of you all are wondering where in the world is the Door Peninsula located in Wisconsin, it is located right around Green Bay, uh, north of Milwaukee. So this uh, LaSalle's boat, Le Griffon, departs the shores of Wisconsin's Door Peninsula with an abundance of pelts to be sold in Europe. Well, you would hope that, um, that people will benefit in Europe from these pelts. Sadly, Mother Nature has other plans in store, or rather I should say Mother Nature herself had other plans in store. 
Sadly, Le Griffon encountered a ferocious storm along, the wa along Lake Erie's waters. And this storm was so ferocious that Le Griffon never would be heard from again. Which meant that Robert LaSalle's ship had become the first commercial vessel to perish along Great Lakes waters. LaSalle lived, but he, but he wasn't um, on the boat. He had other missions and objectives to achieve. Matter of fact, he died eight years after 1679. But since 1679, thousands of vessels have perished under a host of circumstances from colliding into one another, capsizing, to breaking in two during violent stormy weather. It might be fair to say that the Great Lakes never give up their dead, most notably Lake Superior. And the reason I mention that is because um, whenever I hear um, the phrase, whenever I hear the phrase that the skies of November turn gloomy, I often think of uh, Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald because he is um, quoted for saying in that song that uh, when the skies of November turn gloomy, what that means is that November is the month that is notorious for uncertainty. Well, let's, we'll find out more about why November is one of those notorious of months for Great Lakes vessels. Now, uh, forward 234 years later, 1913, it's quite a leap. Pre-World War I time, but it's not too far off from when um, World War I does occur. And, and, and I should say that even in 1913, uh, the last thing that's on the minds of the American people is uh, not only going to war, but going into war involving European affairs that don't pertain to us whatsoever. So, forward 234 years later, 1913, pre-World War I times, business along Great Lakes waters is thriving. But then again, that's to be the most expected norm there is possible. Even when times are good along these waters, fear itself can set in. And the most experienced of crewmen aren't afraid to express what's bothering them inside. Take Milton Smith first assistant engineer on the Charles S. Price. He's not far away from attaining the rank of chief engineer, but he's got second thoughts. Why in the world would a fella who is a first assistant engineer, who is not terribly shy, or rather I should say not terribly far from earning this rank of chief engineer, getting second thoughts? What is it that could possibly be holding Milton Smith back? Well, first assistant engineer Milton Smith couldn't let go of what was bothering him considering the Charles S. Price had one more round trip to make before ending its shipping season come the early start of November. Although his rank was high up on engineer level, Milton Smith still held the label of sailor. Sailors often could have 
minds of their own when it came to something they felt was, a, was about to go terribly wrong along Great Lakes waters, most notably involving November. Well, November should be viewed as a time for wrapping up all commercial business along these waters, but more often than not, ship captains are looking for ways to make extra money, which means keeping their crew out on the waters a little bit longer than expected. You know, for some shipping companies, some years are rougher than others. Some ships have been um, tied up at the dock longer than expected because of, um, because of um, extenuous uh, maintenance repairs. Maintenance repairs that they didn't think um, were going to take as long as necessary, but once they're done, they want those ships out on the waters. Why is that? To make money. And if it means come November and you're still somewhat in a deficit and you need to make up for it, then you're going to see to it that your crewmen are out on the water maybe for another week or two longer compared to everyone else who um, has ended the season on a better note. So for Milton Smith, he's a married man. And not only is he a married man, but he has six children to support. It's a lot of um, mouths to feed, but it's also a lot, a, a lot of factors there. But his fear pertained to past misfortunes involving ships that went out into Great Lake waters. One last time in the month of November, only to never be seen again. You know, it could be, folks, that one of the reasons why maybe November is so notorious is because the weather is unpredictable. Sometimes in early November, it has been known that the weather is still somewhat mild. Then all of a sudden, you get a cold front and a warm front, or I should say cold and warm fronts, colliding with one another, bringing weather that is so unpredictable that even the most seasoned of veterans along these waters, they've lived to tell other stories from years past about storms, but sometimes new storms come, new fronts, new fronts that were different or turn out to be different than previous uh, weather fronts, new weather systems that come into play that uh, wreak greater damage not just to ships, but to people's lives, and in some instances, uh, death. So the month of November is really a month that, that plays with the minds of sailors. It plays with the minds of, of a ship's captain and his crew. It plays with the minds of those whom are uh, looking to make that extra, um, round, make that extra trip. They're looking to chase that almighty dollar as a means of attaining a greater surplus or attaining a bonus, whatever it takes to please the, the officials from above who are the head honchos. Sometimes that's a good thing and other times it's not. So, yes, we know that Milton Smith is a married man with six children to support, but his fear has pertained to past misfortunes involving ships that went out into Great Lakes waters one last time only to never be seen again. 
Once a sailor's premonitions, maybe you all know what premonitions refer to? Fears, omens. So once a sailor's premonitions had kicked in, the harder it became to persuade them to change, to change their mind, rather. And Milton Smith fit the exact profile. Captain William Black, the Charles S. Price's captain, tried repeatedly in talking Milton Smith out of um, quitting, but Milton Smith wouldn't budge. In other words, he wasn't going to give in. Ironically, early November 13, early November of 1913, I should say, was unseasonably warm along Great Lakes waters, and many veterans behind commercial shipping had confirmed just how smooth sailing itself was. Here we are. We've had some mild, unseasonably weather. We're moving up along the waters so easily that nothing can stop us. Wouldn't it be great to say it could last like that forever? Wishful thinking. But even these good news reports alone couldn't stop Milton Smith from unexpectedly resigning, given how dedicated he had been at his post. Although the Charles S. Price had two remaining loads left before her year closed, the Weather Bureau predicted storms on Lake Superior in Michigan. But while in years past some storms never fully materialized, okay? The Weather Bureau predicted storms, but they got it wrong. The storms never materialized. They ended up um, just not forming. So a captain and his crew were spared. They were able to go about resuming their business. But then again, they were probably already on the waters of the Great Lakes even before these warnings got issued. However, there were times when the Weather Bureau did predict storms and they got them right. And for those storms that were predicted and met with full 100% accuracy, they left their marks. Uh, one in particular from eight years earlier, 1905, a bad winter storm occurred on um, Lake Superior, which eight years later weighed heavily upon Milton Smith's uh, mind. I don't know if Milton Smith was a part of what had happened eight years before, but it's fair to say that he would have known men whom survived and lost their lives in this um, deadly storm from uh, 1905. Yes, staying out on the waters a little bit longer is never a bad thing, especially when you can be rewarded and uh, earning a bonus. Hey, bonuses are, are, all, are always a good thing. But at the same time, is it fair to say that uh, getting a bonus is not always a good thing, even if it means going out into waters where you don't know what the weather could be like one day after the next, most notably in November, when the skies are turning gloomy and there's uncertainty all around you. A bonus will always be there. But what about your life? You only have one life. As they say, sometimes a boat can be replaced. Sometimes 
A mission can be delayed, but you as an individual or as a crew cannot be replaced. So yes, a bonus is great. But as for Milton Smith, when he left, little did he know that the Charles S. Price, being a 504-foot vessel, and it was just three years old, really in its prime, would meet its fate in just a few days after Mr. Smith resigned. Little did Mr. Smith know that when he resigned, that he would be seeing his crew for the last time. That is, the remainder of his crew would not um, would not return. Milton Smith must have um, known something. Is it fair to say that with this unseasonably warm weather, that he knew that for one it wasn't going to last forever, and that it would only be a matter of time before the weather changed so drastically, to where to where the weather itself not only went from one extreme to the other, but it was also going to mean a strong likelihood that lives would be lost. Yes, he had all he had those premonitions. And fortunate enough, Milton Smith was smart enough to get out when he did. Yes, some people could say that he was being being a coward about it. But hey, even the most seasoned of veterans sometimes know what's best not only for themselves but for their families, and they know that, hey, something's not right here. I have a bad feeling about what's in store, that this storm may be different from other storms. Sure, we've ridden out past storms. Sure, we've ridden out storms that never materialized, but there's always going to be that one that does materialize, that one storm that will change the lives of not only those on the waters, but their families that they leave behind. Not just families, but towns, cities. Everyone's lives are at stake, folks, regardless of whether you are a part of the, of the ship. Even if you work for the uh, shipping industry, being the company that uh, oversees the building or construction of ships that go out into these waters, you too are affected as well. I think we learned that uh, most notably from talking about um, in the books that we did on the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald and the Carl S. Bradley. Storms themselves can yield carnage. And you all know what carnage means, uh, destruction. But for, but for four consecutive days from November 7th to the 10th of 1913, the Great Lakes endured a merciless storm which led, let's listen very carefully, folks, which led to 12 boats sinking. 12 boats, folks. It's awkward enough when maybe one or two boats sink, but 12. How about over 30 boats having grounded on rocks or beaches to dozens more becoming severely damaged? Sadly, this storm claimed the lives of more than 250 men did you hear that, folks? This storm claimed the lives of more than 250 men, including eight boats and their entire crews, all lost in one day alone on Lake Huron. Can you imagine being one 
uh, being a crewman on one of those eight boats and you along with the, the rest of your crew are gone because of a, of a monster storm. You know, we'll mention here soon about uh, weather forecasting and all that. But think about this. It, it is fair to say that in 1913, weather forecasting, while it was around, it was not sophisticated like we know today. So, sadly, the storm claimed the lives of more than 250 men, including eight boats and their entire crews, all lost in one day along Lake Huron. The storm of 1913 was so intense to where cities like Cleveland, Ohio, which, which is a prime city for uh, shipping along Great Lakes waters, considering Cleveland um, is on Lake Erie. So for a city like Cleveland, Ohio, that city endured a torrential blizzard, resulting in, the, in, in its communication and transportation systems being entirely cut off. And I will tell you this uh, later on in this uh, podcast series that we are going to be doing. We will learn more about how Cleveland, Ohio uh, endured such a unexpected blizzard that resulted in the city being literally cut off for a few days. Not long after the storm had subsided, shipping companies, including sailors, went about blaming the Weather Bureau for not providing adequate information. Adequate meaning uh, abundant or uh, relevant, uh, necessary information. However, the fault alone couldn't be placed entirely on the Weather Bureau service, considering that shipping companies were often accused of valuing commerce over safety to boat captains sending their vessels out in perilous weather conditions seeking end-of-the-season rewards, being bonuses. Well, maybe it's fair to say that nobody was immune from this. Maybe it's fair to say that everybody involved has uh, some form of fault to, um, to share, or that all parties involved are, were to be held accountable for their actions. And yes, um, I could see how um, shipping companies would have been accused of valuing commerce over safety, because more often than not, shipping companies were trying to meet their quotas. They were trying to make sure that their um, that the goods that needed to get uh, delivered to um, from point A to point B were there. Because if they weren't, then you they would have uh, dissatisfied customers on the receiving end. So is it fair to say that even in 1913, or the early part of the 20th century, that we are um, in some precarious situations where expectations are high? And if those expectations aren't met, then, um, then they're, uh, how, do we, how do we say it? If the expectations aren't met, then we have unhappy campers, not only on the receiver's side, but on the shipper's side. Think about it. We don't have Amazon in 1913. But the bottom line is, is that even in the start of the 20th century, businesses expect things to get done, even if it means ignoring what Mother Nature has in store. So in the end, all parties uh, involved came to an agreement that the boats never should have been out under no circumstances. <laughs> but technology at the start of the 20th century was still dormant. 
for long-term accurate weather forecasting. In 1913, vessels weren't equipped with GPS systems, but instead sailors resorted to determining direction by the use of what, folks? A compass. Sailors determined depth by dropping lead to a lake's floor, and sailors were dependent upon coal for fueling all steam engines. What I also found interesting about 1913 was that it happened to be a year of some unique firsts. For starters, the IRS began collecting federal income taxes. So think about it. It was not until 109 years ago that the government finally had began collecting federal income taxes. I could see how for uh, many of years in the Gilded Age, which was um, starting after the Civil War had ended, the Gilded Age went pretty much from, uh, I think, 1870 up until 1915, right around the time um, the United States was gradually getting involved in World War I. But think about it. For a number of years, the wealthy who had their um, fancy and elaborate uh, mansions, when I think of fancy and elaborate mansions, I often think of Newport, Rhode Island. Did any of those people have to uh, pay any income taxes on their estates? during the Gilded Age? No. But of course that all changed in 1913. Some other things that were um, unique was that uh, stainless steel was invented that year. Of course when I think of stainless steel I often think of stainless steel tanks for um, stainless steel Chardonnay in terms of uh, wine that is non-oaked wine in a stainless steel tank. Then there was the number two pencil that was introduced, including, including the development of the first 35-millimeter cameras. Boy, I tell you, we've come a long way with technology. Another unique thing that I'm always reminded of that happened in 1913 was that um, the Federal Reserve, the modern-day Federal Reserve, was created under the Federal Reserve Act by a, um, a prominent and uh, powerful Virginia legislator, uh, by the, whose name um, was uh, Carter Glass, who hailed from Lynchburg. As a matter of fact, uh, E.C. Glass High School um, it was named after Edwin um, Carlisle Glass, who was uh, connected to Carter Glass. But it was, uh, but Carter Glass was um, the man whom helped um, create the um, Federal Reserve through his uh, legislation, being the Federal Reserve Act. So there are a lot of uh, unique things happening in 1913. But prior to the start of uh, the 20th century, what kind of boats do you all think dominated Great Lakes waters? And, and these boats were along the waters up until the late 19th century. How about wooden boats? Is it fair to say that the Le Griffon that Robert LaSalle constructed being that first boat that navigated along Great Lakes waters and sadly was the first boat to perish along the waters was a wooden boat? Absolutely. But by the late 19th century, these wooden boats were getting replaced by steel boats, which were powered by steam engines. Come the early start of the 20th century, a new ship design was beginning to have its impact felt along the Great Lakes. What kind of a ship would that be? The new ships now became known as straight deckers. Whereas wooden and steel boats had their pilot house 
or what's referred to as their uppermost decks, placed in the center, straight deckers had deck houses stationed from the utmost front and back ends of their boats, which meant larger cargo holds in the middle for storing greater cargo, freight supplies, commodities. This is pretty revolutionary, to say the least. If straight-deckers had any flaws, which they did, one issue centered upon the vessel's midsection, or being its middle. Large cargo holds meant greater need for hatch openings and covers. Hatch covers were the uh, flat sheets of steel or wood, covering raised rims around hatch openings to curtail excessive water from washing over deck and entering the inside of the cargo hold. Whenever nasty storms arose, straight deckers' middle sections faced vulnerability without, with or without cargo aboard. If cargo was not present, straight deckers rode high in the water, which meant it became more likely for rupturing and cracking when waves ran beneath boats, resulting in the midsection, or the middle, rising and falling without any support. You know, it's so easy to think that when we see waves, most notably at the beach, that when they come, they're visible. Usually they are, but what we don't realize is that waves can also go underneath. And when they do go underneath, they can, if, the, if everything's right and conditions are that terrible, and Great Lakes waters have produced 30 and 40 foot waves, I mean, those are bad waves. And, and when you get 40 and 50 foot waves and water goes underneath the boats, yes, that at the speed that the, that the water is coming at you, it can, um, it can tear a hole apart. It can rupture to the point where a, a ship could split in two. In 1913, uh, crewmen aboard straight deckers had become accustomed to crossing decks from one extreme end to the other. But as the storm soon began to unravel, the boats themselves would become no match for Mother Nature's fury. The Weather Bureau's origins prior to 1913 go back for 43 years earlier when on February the 9th of 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant signed a congressional joint resolution into law, introducing a new agency known as the U.S. Army Signal Corps, which sought to improve upon weather monitoring and forecasting. It's a bold step right here, to say the least. November 6th of 1913, the first winds of the storm made their way into Minnesota. What lake uh, borders uh, Minnesota? Well, what lake um, is on Minnesota of the Great Lakes? Lake Superior. Matter of fact, um, if there's uh, one city that comes to my mind where um, the city itself has a significant impact on Lake Superior, it's Duluth, as well as uh, Superior, Wisconsin, which uh, happens to uh, border Duluth. So, November 6th of 1913, the first winds of the storm made their way into Minnesota. The Weather Bureau, given that here we are in 1913, it's um, 
It started out, obviously, as the U.S. Army Signal Corps, but it's now become the Weather Bureau. The Weather Bureau itself was already established uh, when it came to being successful at handling um, such tasks as temperature recordings, wind velocity, and direction. Of course, wind velocity, we think of wind speed. And with direction, um, where direction meaning uh, where are the winds coming out of? Are they blowing from the northwest, southwest? You know, th that kind of thing. Determining barometric uh, pressure, a.k.a. pressure within the Earth's atmosphere, including precipitation. Although the Weather Bureau's headquarters was stationed in Washington, D.C., relationship between the Bureau and the shipping industry could best be seen as complicated. How so? Well, for starters, sailors never gave people at the Weather Bureau proper respect. That's not good. I mean, you don't want to burn bridges with people, but it seems like sailors just feel as though these weather um, re weather um, reporters or uh, weather forecast people, they say one thing and then, and, and then it um, turns out to be the opposite nine times out of ten. Well, maybe they're entitled to their own opinion there, but just remember there's always going to be that one time when... <laughs> when the weather people might get it right. Three out of four times, maybe not, but there's always that one, and when it does happen, it can be so bad in terms of a storm that if you on the opposing party aren't prepared for it, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. Well, uh, for starters, um, as we've already established, for starters, sailors never gave people at the Weather Bureau proper respect. Secondly, weather forecasting over a 24-hour period was viewed with, with inaccuracy, okay? So really, the furthest we could go in 1913 was up to 24 hours. But who in the world is predicting weather over a 72-hour span? How can we know what the weather is going to be like three days from now, given that here we are in the present moment, and all we know is what could happen within a day's time? So anything over 24 hours, really, in the minds of the sailors and those in the shipping industry, could automatically be seen as inaccuracy. Well, in 1913, if you wanted to, to determine the wind velocity, it could be done so based upon how long it took one's hat to blow off their head. <laughs> Come November of 1913, and the storm that would soon unravel... This storm would yield little in, in improving upon the existing current relationship status between the Weather Bureau and the shipping industry. And of course, I'm sure many of y'all are wondering, how in the world could a, a storm so violent, so destructive, not improve the existing relations between uh, two agencies? Well, as we get further into this uh, book we will learn why one agency was still a bit hostile to making the necessary adapt adaptive uh, changes. Of course, the agency survived, but what was proposed to them was just not something they wanted to do. The Great Lakes hurricane storm of 1913 from November 7th to the 10th produced a path of terrible destruction 
not seen before, but yet the storm itself involved human contributions that should never have occurred. The story behind what unfolded during these four days is one of many factors, ranging from poor judgment, bad luck and timing, performing heroic actions to making good decisions, ignorance to weather warnings issued, demonstrating solid skills behind the wheel in the midst of the storm's presence. Maybe it's fair to say that this is a story of the good, the bad, and the ugly. More than anything else to remember as we embark on this endeavor is being reminded about those whom survived and perished. Given man himself must be reminded that he isn't the most powerful element on earth. The most powerful and awe-inspiring element on earth belongs solely to Mother Nature, and when her warnings go unheeded, bad premonitions arise, meaning survival itself no longer guaranteed. It could be fair to say that uh, first engineer Milton Smith was one of the few whom did, whom took Mother Nature's warnings very seriously. Yes, he was not a weather uh, forecaster, but he just had a bad premonition that something was going to arise, given what had happened in the past. And yes, maybe people had been spared from anything um, catastrophic compared to what might have happened seven or eight years earlier. But that doesn't mean that uh, being immune lasts forever, especially when it comes to the month of November when the skies turn gloomy and there's nothing but uncertainty along, the, along Great Lakes waters, especially when you're trying to get in one or two more runs just to make some extra money. Yes, the bonuses are great, but if it means playing with people's lives just to make an extra buck, well, we all, now we have to wonder what's more important, money or safety? These are questions that will, um, that will come up as we um, move along in this new book series. So the title of this book that we're going to be discussing is November's Fury, The Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. And, and for those of you who've been with me for some time, you all probably should be very familiar with Michael Schumacher since he wrote the book, The Wreck of the... Um, of the the Mighty Fitz, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, as well as the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley. Many of you all are wondering, how come you like reading about the Great Lakes? Well, it's something unique, and even these uh, shipwrecks along the Great Lakes waters have stories to tell, considering that thousands of ships have lost their lives, have succumbed to these waters since uh, the since 1679, when Robert LaSalle's ship became the first to have uh, succumbed on, the, uh, on those waters. But uh, one thing I can point out is that um, not since uh, 1975, the Great Lakes have been immune from any other uh, shipwrecks since 1975. The Edmund Fitzgerald uh, sank in November of that year, so knock on wood, um, the Great Lakes have not experienced a uh, shipwreck in 47 years. 
It is fair to say that technology has improved drastically since 1975, and technology has improved drastically since 1913. But even here we are in the 21st century, we should still be reminded that man himself is not the most powerful element on this universe. He can have all the sophisticated technology there is to modify and reduce um, the, un the unexpected. But no matter how sophisticated his technology is, Mother Nature will always have the upper hand, and Mother Nature will always have the final say as to what outcomes are in store. So I look forward to uh, telling you all this story of November's Fury, the dead, deadly Great Lakes hurricane of, 19, of 1913. And when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to learn more about the, um, the origins of the weather uh, patterns that um, evolved resulting in what would become of this uh, hurricane. And we'll also learn some other unique stuff as well, too. So um, I'm glad that you all are with me on this uh, series. And thank you again for having been with me for some time. Uh, you guys are great. If it weren't for you all, I don't know if I would have attained the level of success that I've had uh, through Anchor Podcast. So uh, thank you again, and wherever you all may reside, continue to stay safe.